With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Now, All Ball, we do long-form interviews, usually revolving around the world of basketball. But as you guys know, if you've listened long enough, we've had baseball, we've had college football, we've had NFL football, we've had just people's journey. And I thought that this is a really interesting journey. This is Jack Easterby, as we've covered um, his professional life up until, well, he left the New England Patriots and ultimately went to the Houston Texans. And that's where he became really a known figure. But how did he get to Houston? Why Houston? How did he climb the ladder so quickly there? And what happened with his relationship with Bill O'Brien that ultimately led to the whole kind of organization falling apart a little bit? And then what's next? All that's in here. Let's conclude our conversation with Jack Easterby. Where we left off, he's with the champion New England Patriots. Take a listen. Why'd you leave New England for Houston? Well, I think what happens is when you um, become uh, a part of any organization, uh, you get different roles um, given to you as you advance over time. And uh, I was really blessed in New England to get a couple of different cool roles, right, that Bill had kind of built and or added on and felt like within that organization after being there several years and, and obviously the team having some cool success, I felt that I had kind of gotten to a place where it was time for me uh, to evaluate uh, potentially an opportunity somewhere else um, and knew that, you know, um, that structure had certain things in it that were going to stay there and just wanted to respect that structure since it was so good to us. And, you know, we left, you know, good terms and evaluated, you know, hey, listen, we don't know where we'll go. Basketball, baseball, you know, took in a lot of different sporting opportunities. Wait, so you, you left you, you left on your own volition but with no clear landing spot in Houston. That's right. Yeah. So we left. Uh, we obviously ran Super Bowl in Atlanta. Really, really cool experience. Like I talked to you about last time watching Brian Flores and and uh, Josh McDaniels and Sean McVay and Bill Belichick on the same field, duke it all out. And then, um, yeah, after that Super Bowl, chose to, you know, kind of seek out uh, something different and uh, really, obviously, like I said, kept good relationships intact there, but just chose to seek out a different opportunity for development or potentially leadership purposes. So how, how does it actually work? Okay, you get done with the Super Bowl, you guys win the Super Bowl. Yeah. You go back, I'm sure, for the victory parade. Yeah. Oh, parades, man. You can't miss a Boston parade. Come on now, Doug. You know that now. You're on the on the duck boat? Oh, my gosh, man. Let me tell you something. There was – now, the only thing about those duck boats that I'll tell that you'll love is parade, I don't know, five miles. I don't know how long it is. But you're going – they they go with a repeat song for the whole parade on your duck boat. Oh. So, man, oh. Coach, it's, it's a blessing – but man, you know every word of that song by the time you're done, man. You could. So we did. It uptown, earworm. They call it an earworm where it plays over and over and over again. Right. We did Uptown Funk You Up, man. We had it going. It was like, I know I could sing that song at every wedding, every time it ever comes up for the rest of my life. I'll know that. But uh, but yeah, no, went back to the parade and then, you know, met with Bill and Robert and felt that it was best for us to move forward. And um, really, you know, good opportunity there. You know, it was a little later um, in the job cycle for the NFL, but. 
um, you know, everything works out in time. And um, yeah, so uh, didn't didn't know exactly what we were going to do and met with a lot of different relationships in college sports and pro sports, not that dissimilar to what I'm doing now. And um, just, you know, thought through different opportunities. And, um, you know, about a month and a half later, you know, got to Houston. So were you, did you stay in Boston? Did you go back to South Carolina? What was, what was going on during this time when you're, no, you're seeking stayed, the next spot? Yeah, we stayed geographically in Boston. It's obviously a great city. And we actually lived out in Foxborough, which was more rural Massachusetts, but, um, you know, it was a good place to fly from, you know, go different places. And I've uh, got a chance to see some basketball. I went down to South Providence play a couple times because uh, Foxborough is kind of in between, you know, Boston, yeah. Providence. Providence and Boston. Yeah. That's right. So I jumped down there. Not, not crazy far from Hartford either. It's like nobody realizes like it's kind of a, it's it, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's close to a lot. That's right. And, and uh, oh, yeah, one of our favorite weekends in Boston, I think one of our bye weekends, we took a train as a family in New York City. Uh, and went down to Madison Square Garden, uh, watched a game, and um, you know we were working for the Patriots. Went saw the Knicks. It was super awesome. So yeah, that region you can get there pretty much everything. So we stayed in that region, and um, I actually went and uh, sat in the back of some classes um, at some different universities um, for a month and a half there, and just kind of audited some classes and learned and. Uh, just spent that time kind of reflecting on a, an amazingly cool run in New England. And, um, um, you know, we just thought and prayed about what was next. So how does it actually work? Does somebody reach out to you? Do you know they have a position? Is there an intermediary? How did it take you to Houston? I think it's all of the above, right? <laughs> in, in the sports business, you know, you you have representation that can help you. You have relationships that can help you. Um, and then obviously you have your own knowledge of, of the history of, of the sport and or the history of uh, potentially the franchises. And so, um, you know, was blessed to, you know, have a relationship with uh, Nick Casario uh, there at uh, New England, who knew Billy O'Brien really well. And um, I didn't know Billy. I had never worked with Billy before, but um, I had a good relationship with Nick and Nick. uh we connected us with Billy and then, um, yeah. And, and the McNair family, uh, had had a great reputation from my time at South Carolina, Bob McNair went to South Carolina. So he had a great relationship with coach Spurrier, um, and had made a big impact on the university, uh, in lots of ways, including his wisdom to Eric Hyman, who I mentioned earlier was our AD. Um, and so they all had great relationship, heard great things. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We had played Houston several times when I was in new England, um, you know, early rounds of the playoffs, uh, and then also just the way that the AFC South had worked with them winning the division and us winning the division. We had played them several times uh, while I was in New England. So it was a little bit like, a, uh, you know, I don't want to say um, it was just there's a, some familiarity. Yeah, there's familiarity there. That's right. I'm familiar with the fact they wore those horrendous letter jackets, whoever's decision that was. Remember the Thursday night game? They broke out the leather, leather jackets. Like, what is that? What are they doing? What are they doing? They, got beat, they, they look like a high school team. They got beat like a high school team. Dress to a football game is a very unique discussion in its own, right? Because, you know, what do you wear? Do you wear – if you wear all black and you prepare for the funeral, it sets you up for a potential headline. If you wear too much, you know, nice clothes, everybody wants to dress down. If you dress down, everybody wants to dress nice. So it's a subject of its own merit. Um, okay, so what did Nick say your job was going to be? Well, so when I got there originally, uh, you know, obviously Nick wasn't there yet. Right. So Nick was still in New England. 
um, got there and got a chance to, you know, work uh, under Bill um, and just serve him however I could. Uh, Bill obviously was a proven good coach. He had done a good job uh, with the team there in Houston and been successful several AFC Channel South Division win, uh, winning seasons and, um, you know, had gone, um, I think, established a pretty good program, him coming from Penn State. And so I came in, you know, under him and just tried to help wherever I could, uh, mainly in areas like player development, uh, things like that, but just try to help wherever I could, um, you know, under him as, as kind of a head coach, special assistant to head coach type situation. So what, but your special assistant, so you did a little of this, a little of that. Did you mostly help people with, you know, with prayer, with, with counseling? What was, what was your day-to-day in that first year? Gosh, I, I think the first year, you know, there were so many um, things really intact. I, I, for me, the first year was how to, um, you know, come alongside the coaching staff and then come alongside the support staff and, and just, connect things better in relationship to communication meetings, things like that. Um, and there was no, sorry for interrupting. So does that mean like, you know, do guys seek you out or do you seek them out? Like, how does that, they send you a text, Hey man, I got an issue here. Can you help me out with this? Or is it simply you seeking them out? You kind of seem a little bit off. I just, is there anything I can do to help? Well, I think with Houston, right, the coaching staff had uh, already had a really good curriculum in place. So throughout the year, they knew what they were doing at different parts. They had been there for five years or four or five years, I think, with Billy already. So I just came in and really got a lot of my prompts from them, you know, things that they needed me to do to help uh, whatever they perceived were challenges um, or things that they were already doing that I would help with, whether that was practice or staff meetings, just like any employee, you just try to jump in and, and uh, when a program is already established, you know, there's obviously one set of things that are going on, right? When a program is not established yet, there's another set. So this time of year, as you well know, around the NFL, you know, when you get one of these new jobs like in Arizona, right, where you have a new head coach and new GM, that onboarding process is a lot different, right? Because they're establishing every way that they do everything, right, from expense reports to how they'll draft players to how they'll communicate to how they'll do media, you know, uh, communications and or press conferences and um and then even how they do staff reporting structures, all that stuff is on the table when you have a whole new regime. When I got to Houston, it was they were really intact. So my goal was to you know come underneath what they had already started there, and rip and run uh, with that. Uh, what was your relation like with Billy when you first got there? Good, yeah, it was good. He he was a good coach, and um, <coughs> I felt like he got the, a lot out of the team, you know, um, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Um, every coach, you know, has their own way that they do it. We've seen this across all college and pro sports, right. Is that, you know, the best coaches at the end of the year, every year, aren't the same personality, aren't the same guy. Uh, they're all different. And so, uh, Billy got a ton out of the roster, um, every year, um, obviously was competitive. Uh, I thought there was some really unique things about Houston that, um, when I got there, just learning the heat and how to practice, um, learning the different challenges of, of, um, you know, how each franchise works are really interesting. So I thought, uh, he did a great job getting the most out of the players there had made them really competitive, um, and was really fun to work alongside with, 
you know, a good solid program in plaque. It reminded me a little bit of what we had built or been a part of in New England, um, but obviously had its own unique uh, elements to it, um, you know, because he was obviously a part of Bill's coaching tree. So a lot of similar facts, but, uh, you know, enough differences too that uh, gave some uh, growth and, uh, and growth opportunity. Um, Cal McNair. Cal McNair. A lot that's said about Cal McNair, but he's not really a known figure to most anybody here. You know him. You worked really closely with him. Is that, is that accurate? Like you guys had a really good relationship. Yes. Yes. Really, really good family. I would say one of the things that's really unique about each sporting entity, it's particularly franchises in the NFL, is they all have their own unique origin, right? I mean, when you're talking about, you know, Modell taking the balls and going, you know, to a different a part of the country or when you're talking about, you know, uh, the origin of uh, obviously the, the New England Patriots uh, in a city like Boston, um, each one has its own origin. And so Houston, uh, you know, when the Oilers left, you know, there was a six, whatever, five, six year period there where there was no football in Houston. And so what that did was really diversify the fan base, right? Because as you know, in a lot of these major cities, people grow up with the sports teams in their blood, right? They grow up with jerseys for Christmas and tickets at, you know, Thanksgiving and, and all the things that go into, you know, all these amazing traditions of, of having a sports team, particularly in the NFL, as a part of your city. And Houston had a gap, you know, after the Oilers left um, where there was no pro football. So the McNair family really reached out to, you know, the city and obviously um, Bob's relationships at the National Football League level and were in a lot of ways saviors of football in Houston. They brought the NFL back um, to to Houston and uh, were able to launch this expansion team um, in a region that hadn't had football in forever. So when I got to Houston, it was very quickly obvious how much the McNair family and how much Houston football meant to everybody because they kind of knew what it was like not to have it, you know? Um, and so McNair's are great people and uh, enjoyed, you know, enjoyed working with them and learning from them, um, you know, the whole, every step of the way. Why do you think uh, there's a negative connotation towards Cal McNair in, in, in some places? Yeah, good question. I don't know. I, I couldn't speak to why there may be, or if there may be, I, I would just say, um, I think there's certain things that are known and unknown about every uh, major figure in sports right now across the entire globe. You know, I think I was reading an article uh, this morning about some of the stuff that's going on, you know, overseas and, and um, the EPL with some of the soccer transitions, you know, midseason, uh, you know, acquisitions and transitions of players and coaches. And I think sometimes there's, you know, assumptions made without full deck of cards in, in all of these positions that people have now, just because it's part of the way our culture's gone, right, is we we make a lot of assumptions without full deck of card information, you know. And so, like I said, I had a great relationship with the McNairs, really enjoyed every minute of it. Um, and I wouldn't – I would say all of the conversations that, you know, I've seen that have been a part of leaders – um, where they're being evaluated uh, publicly or privately, uh, most of it's done without a full deck of cards. And so people don't really know. Um, and as I mentioned, we talked last time, you know, Bill uh, Belichick is a great example of that. You know, I just really, really enjoyed my time with him, uh, challenging me to think differently, 
you know, his relationship uh, investing in, in Holly and I uh, and where we were at that time, um, you know, and you wouldn't necessarily know that from perception, right? So I think there's different things that are real as you kind of make these analysis and you kind of have to just uh, know what's what's behind the curtain is is the most valuable and what people know sometimes in the showroom may not be the whole story. No question about it. Okay, so the GM at the time is who? Is, is, was Rick the GM or who's, who's the GM? Brian Gain when I first got there. Okay, so Brian's the GM. Yes. And Bill's the coach. And Cal just took over, right? And as much as they're playing well on the field, it does feel like there's a, a – again, and this is more how it appeared to play out to those of us who were not there and you were there. It appears as though they weren't all – aligned is that accurate inaccurate like paint the picture of how those three worked at, at that early stage together yeah and like i said they, some of that probably um may have predated me you know getting to houston um but i would say you know as as you evolve an organization any any uh, evaluation that you're doing i think what you're trying to evaluate is kind of where you've been where you are now and where you're going. And you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what happens is I think sometimes people make sometimes too heavy handed of an evaluation on one or two of the three, you know, and I think you have to do all three. And so, you know, listen, I thought, you know, the evaluations that were done were made, you know, Cal did a good job, you know, making evaluations where he felt that were what were best for the team uh, for all different roles. And, you know, I think that we all went through a lot of transition, but I think in the end, uh, the conversations that were happening were just to get to the next best space uh, to try to help the organization move forward. And I think that, you know, listen, all organizations, professional sports or in corporate America, um, they're making good decisions as they see fit with the information they have, you know, and I think that as you make decisions, with the information you have, a lot of people outside the organization are never going to have the, all of that information, you know? And so you kind of have to make them and you kind of move forward and just keep telling the truth to the people in the inner circle um, so that you can get better each step uh, as you kind of make hard choices. Now the, the story goes again, the narrative. Okay. And you, you tell us what's real that <clears throat> Cal, you and Cal got exceptionally close that there was a great bond and a really close friendship there. And that it was at Cal's urging to give you more, mm, I don't know if more to do at work or a little bit more power. I don't know what the word you would, you, you would look for. And that not everybody took that the way in which it was intended. Is that, is this valid? Is this, what, what, what did it feel like at the time as your, you had get, become more established in Houston. Your relationship with the new owner starts to grow and, and, and how other people felt about what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I can never speak to how somebody else felt, but I can, I can surely say I was really thankful for um, again, my relationship with the McNairs. I felt like they, you know, were, uh, you know, very good to our family and, and we communicated with them um, honestly, they communicated with us, honestly, felt like that was always a good relationship, you know, and I think as things evolve and 
again, things uh, have to change sometimes. I think people who don't always have every bit of information uh, make evaluations based on what they see. Um, I think one of the cool things about uh, sports right now that we're seeing as private equity has entered into like the golf space or as, you know, obviously some of these NBA teams have, have changed hands a little bit. I think that all of the leaders of these organizations are making decisions, like I said, um, not just based on where they are, but where they want to go. And I think that having the conviction to do that and being able to dig deep into some of the discussions that need to happen to do that, um, you know, I think it shows really good leadership. And so um, I felt that, you know, uh, Cal did that. Uh, I thought he did that. I thought he made good decisions in relationship to where things needed to be and where things needed to go. And, uh, you know, it was my job to do whatever the organization needed me to do to try to serve um, along the way as those things recalibrated. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. What was it like for you when the Sports Illustrated article came out? You know, I appreciate you asking that. I'm, I'm you know, really humbled by a chance to just talk about this because I think for me, I had never really been a public person, you know, obviously right. in Boston. And I think you even mentioned this when we talked first, I, 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 you know, Boston or Kansas city, I'd never really done much media. Uh, I had never really presented myself publicly. Um, and that was intentional. Just didn't feel that was the right way to handle it uh, from a role perspective. Um, so naturally um, when you get presented with that type of thing, you start kind of finding, you know, you're obviously offended by it personally, but you're trying to find a way to justify or to, you know, um, you know, react in a way that um, is honorable, right? Uh, but that shows that you're it frustrates you because there's so many things in there that are were inaccurate. Um, and so I think it was a lot of hard conversations with people in my inner circle and, you know, do you come back and say this? Do you fight it? Do you try to, what do you do? And I think ultimately we decided uh, with, you know, help from other people that are a lot smarter than me. I think we just decided that it wasn't worth having a, you know, fighting a ghost a little bit, right. Fighting a, a, a you know, something that we couldn't necessarily go back and forth with um, because it was just, um, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to, we weren't going to turn that narrative, you know, that big ship around in that small 
uh, port, so to speak. And so we just tried to, you know, mitigate the best we could and, and walk in the truth we knew was real and then, um, you know, evaluate it. But it was a very unique time because until that point, I had always tried to come alongside coaches, staff members, administrators, you know, owners, whoever, and serve uh, without having any sort of, you know, uh, side bets or any sort of uh, public, uh, you know, uh, narrative. And um, it, that kind of tried to switch it. What's the most unfair part of the article? Um, I think the fact that my faith um, potentially um, has had some sort of manipulative um, rung or, or, um, impact, uh, on the people that I've led, um, uh, in a disingenuine fashion. You know, I think that's probably, if I was to say one thing that has kind of stuck with me a little bit has been, you know, I've always been obviously a person of faith. My faith means everything to me and my family, but I've been so blessed to lead and been a part of people from all different backgrounds and have always tried to treat them with the utmost of respect and have tried to love them well and care for them. And we've had them to our house. We've, we've celebrated with all types of life events, you know, with people that we've led and, and, and walked through sports administration or sports ministry with. And so I've always tried to almost take pride in the fact that I'm not, you know, overly pushy with anything that, you know, um, and have never tried to make anybody feel uncomfortable in that way. And I think people that have worked with me would testify to that. So that would probably be the one that stuck out the most um, because I just think there's a place for really good leaders who care for the people around them. And the fact that that care was, was repositioned as potential, you know, some sort of manipulation was just completely inaccurate and unfair. Um, But, but I, I understand and respect from a distance people who may not know me or don't, you know, because I was not a public figure at that time, uh, you know, may have whispered that and in, in that type of, you know, lock and catch fire quick. Did any of it help you in that? Okay. Now I know what people are. Some are saying about me. You know what? That's a great point, Doug. I thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I thought that, you know, knowing the other side of the coin is, is, uh, is healthy, you know, to know what other people may think or potentially things that I could do better as a leader. Um, yeah, there was a lot of education that went with that. You know, how do you make sure you're communicating better with people around you? How do you make sure you're respecting all people to make sure no one's ever in a position? Um, I'll say this and you'll love this because I think as I've listened to your podcast and listened to different guests you've had on, you know, through the time that I was with the Texans. Okay. So think about this for a second in, in world news. Okay. So Donald Trump is the president. Okay. Pandemic. George Floyd is obviously from Houston, right? And so he, you know, obviously, unfortunately, had his situation uh, pass away in in, uh, Minnesota, but was from Houston originally. And then obviously some transition in different uh, parts of the actual football business. And so within all of that, there is a certain level of, um, you know, moving pieces or however you want to call it that creates chaos. Yeah. It creates challenge independent. Of it was, it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it's been a chaotic and challenging time but for anybody. And then, you know, based upon our country's leadership, based upon all these other factors, um, you know, the, the, the people stance against police, police brutality, um, 
the the fact that there's cameras on phones everywhere, so which you would think would give us a clear view of lots of things. On the other hand, what happened before, what happened after isn't on there. So there's a lot. It, it's a fairly chaotic time, I would say, would be would be how I would how I'd phrase it. That's good. That's good wisdom. And I think what what I would say is you'll see this. And I think this would be an interesting study for all of us who really care about these things is the great organizations and, and great leaders will be better on the backside of those issues, not because they made sure. a rule about every one of those things, but because they internalized the lessons and recalibrated accordingly and made things possible uh, for people in their organization um, and made just maybe made the footing a little more solid uh, on the backside of that. And I think we're just now learning that, right? You're looking at some of the biggest corporations are struggling with how much do people still come back to work, right? Or how do we handle social justice better, uh, you know, and equality and communication. And as we prepare for a 24 election, which is already now starting to kind of walk through. So I think, I think for me personally, you know, to answer your question directly, I, I think all of those factors led to just a, a lot of internal evaluation. You know, how can I do things better? How can I continue to make sure that I'm caring for people well, but also leading them well? Um, and, uh, you know, I think I learned a lot through that and I think I'm better for it. I think the people in the trenches with us in Houston are better for it too. You know, I think we were all better for it because adversity introduces a man to himself, as they say. And, and I think you learn and grow through that. I would agree. That's a great, that's a great line. That, that one amuses me. Adversity introduces a man to himself. Wow. Okay. Um, with that in mind, how do you be you, you know, with your strong faith background in the world of professional sports, collegiate sports, especially in the South, but in lots of places in the country, seems to embrace it more. Professional sports, at least outwardly, you know, there are teams that, you know, Carolina Panthers, we talked about it with, with Frank and some others. But when you come in and you say, hey, I, I'm, I'm a faith-based leader in professional sports, you'll get pushback. How do you avoid that the next time around? How do you... Yeah, I think I think that um, I think- and 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 look and look a lot of it is, you know, again I don't know what was going on in Houston, guys. I I don't know, but a lot of it is just so many religious leaders of the past, and even them, it's like the if you if you lined up a hundred, ninety seven of them are legit dudes, right? There's the three percent. Unfortunately, a lot of the that three percent are people that are more visible. So it, it makes you feel like, hey, all of these people, there's something nefarious going on. Yeah, right. And we can do that with anything, right? In coaching, there's if you line up 100 coaches, there's three to five of them that are complete a-holes. No, thank you. <laughs> Don't right. want you around my family. If you line up, it's like people think everybody dodges their taxes. You know, of 100 people, there's like three people who dodge their taxes. <laughs> but we make this assessment of the gross number of people mm. based upon the actions of a few. With that in mind, knowing that, you haven't really had the ability to refute details of this article, right? And you're not going to change who you are, the makeup of who you are. How do you tackle that going forward? You know, I, I don't know if there's a one-step answer to it. I will say this because I think you've been very transparent as we've talked about some different challenges in sports, across sports, not just this sport, but 
uh, or even sports administration as a sector. But I would say, you know, one thing is trust is earned. Trust is earned, right? Like time on task is the way to earn trust. Repeat action is the way to earn trust. My grandmother used to tuck me in the bed. And she used to say, she'd say, boy, she, you know, Southern, Southern grandmother, she used to say, boy, the tongue in your shoe better match the tongue in your mouth. You know, and so it was a way of saying, you know, you do what you say you're going to do, you'll you'll earn trust and or be able to build relationships that are good for both sides. And so I think that that's the, the, the challenge for me is to intentionally and challenge for any leader is to intentionally make and build strategies, relationships and all initiatives that line up with being able to trust the people, the things the initiatives, the circumstances, because they're consistent, you know? And I think if you could do, How do, you do that, that, how do you do that? Especially in your position, okay. Where people are going to share with you intimate details of their life, of their emotional feelings, maybe their relationship with God, right? And it's a powerful thing to have that information. How do you create that level of trust where they'll, sh- where they'll share with you? Well, I think every leader, it, it, and I would say this about most coaches, right, is they're they're having things come into their office that are all types of different categories. I mean, if you talk to any good coach, right, if you sat Tony Dungy down or you sat, you know, even Coach Belichick or Coach Reed or one of the – even the greats in our game, they would tell you, like, things come in my office that are just <laughs> totally irregular from I got a cavity to – my family's messed up to somebody just died, you know, my family to, you know, obviously injury to to all the different levels of, of things that come into an office uh, of a head coach. I think you have to be prepared for that wide spectrum, no matter what. And so they're going to trust you with information as a leader, just independent of your own opinion. But I think as you show the ability to retain that information and be able to listen well, but then also not have to react to the information every single time it comes in the door and give people a safe place to talk, give people a safe place to share, but also not have a necessarily an action every time there's a discussion. I think they begin to see that you have their best interest in heart and that you're willing to, to, to help them if there's a personal situation that comes up, but also professionally that you want what's best for the overall group and that you're willing to put you know programs in place that help everybody, you know, do their best all year long. So I think there's always got to be a place where, as a leader, as an administrator, as a boss in a group, that you 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 are a desk where things will come that are a little bit, you know, there's subjects, you know, there's a wide array of subjects. But as those wide array of subjects come to your desk and they come in the door, you got to be very careful and intentional that you don't judge. Uh, anybody any differently, you let them share as they see that they need to share. And then you find formats and or leadership to, to put those things in so that those people feel safe and encouraged at work. And I, and what's really cool is I think we were able to do that functionally. Really. I really do. I think we were able to, you know, um, you know, see people in the, in the uh, different offices we were, we were leading uh, I think we saw some people really grow. And I think that was one of the things that I, I wish was out there more is how many cool things we were able to do. Um, because even amidst some of the challenges, they're really cool, was really cool progress. When I say Deshaun Watson, what comes to your mind? 
Oh, man. I think um, I remember the first time Dabo, uh, who is a good friend of mine, uh, called me and was so excited about you know Deshaun committing to Clemson because uh, he knew it would be a game changer for him, um, you know, right there from right by uh, Clemson and Gainesville, Georgia, and um, knew that he would be, you know, dual threat, but also knew that he had tons of ability to help him, um, you know, to, to really take the program to the next level. And I remember having that original conversation and Deshaun getting to Clemson and so many things happening there, you know, off the bat. Um, so I would think the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, his impact uh, at Clemson University was dynamic. I mean, it was yeah, no question. a game changer. It was an elevation of not that dissimilar to what you and I talked about with Spurrier. When Spurrier came to, to Columbia, he elevated the entire place. The expectations went up. The, you know, the, the. Well, they were famous for Clemsoning, which would be you know, they compete at the highest level and then they turn around and lose to somebody who they were, they were better than, you know, and just, just miss competing for a national championship by a game, a Saturday here, a Saturday there. And then Deshaun changed it, right? There was, they, they would finish any of those games that they couldn't previously finish. That's right. And he did a great job of making plays with his feet, you know, figuring out ways to, uh, you know, keep them in games to your point, whether it was that one Wake Forest game or that one game that they had, you know, maybe dropped, or maybe uh, it was Florida state for a while there that they would, you know, the Bowden Bowls, right, where they would, you know, before Deshaun got there and Dabo and, and Deshaun were rolling, he eliminated that. He he took their expectations to a whole different level um, and made a huge impact on that community. Um, so when when I when you when you call his name, that's the first thing I think about. He signed the contract extension, and it was a a home run deal. At the time, was there any sort of unsettled feeling for him, right? Because, you know, one of the things that, that doesn't go discussed at all is that, you know, the, the Hopkins trade, which people think is the, like the seminal moment, why he wanted out, he'd already signed, he signed a contract extension after that. Right. So he, whatever level of approval or disapproval, like he signed on. So let, let, let's start with the DeAndre Hopkins trade. Okay. Whether you whether it's fair or unfair, based upon that Sports Illustrated article, okay, you were the advocate for the trade. But what's the reality? Yeah, I think all player transactions, you know, whether it's you know a specific situation like this or it's just in general draft picks or anything, are all group efforts. They're just they're things that people are all you know, jumping in and, and communicating with throughout the entire building. So, so why do you think, again, and this is probably more guessing than knowing, why do you think there would be people that would put that under your name? Hey, Jack Easterby, that's the reason we got, got rid of, got, was we, we made that trade. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a good question. I've thought about that a lot because it's just so inaccurate. You know, it's just so inaccurate. Um I don't know. I think that, you know, as you evaluate different things, um, you know, within staff meetings and as you evaluate things and people talk about potential conversations that may be happening, you know, sometimes those conversations leak out of the staff room and people are evaluating them in different ways. But I, I don't 
Yeah, I've never really understood that because that's totally inaccurate. You know, I think that there's a evaluation, right, that you're making constantly of what's best for the team, you know, how do things navigate. We did that in New England. We did it in Kansas City. We've done it every basketball team I've ever been a part of. Every staff is always evaluating things to see how they can improve. But specifically related to one lobbying, you know, it's just not accurate. So I think um, – yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The, I don't know if I have a great answer for you. I just know that it wasn't a one direct correlation, uh, really, with any transaction, uh, but specifically that one. He won a new deal. He didn't practice, right? Um, and I mean, I think both of those. And it's like, man, there's a lot of money there that he wants, and they're not practicing. Thing that that end up unsettling him in in Arizona. Uh, but it is interesting, and I I think what happened with that deal. Again, outsider looking in is because it didn't feel like you guys got some home run package that, okay, automatically it's a bad trade because the bad trade, who's to blame? And let's take the guy who no one knows of and doesn't do. You become an easy target, right? Whereas the reality is Bill O'Brien was the GM at that time, right? And and, you know, and, and like the Laramie Tunsil trade actually had happened. By the way, Laramie Tunsil, hell of a football player. Not the worst trade ever, actually, if you look at it now. But at the time, like the knee jerk to the deal being made, you become the easiest target because nobody knows you. Like that would be the outside looking in. Yeah. And, and you know, I appreciate you saying that. I think there's an interesting evolution that's happened in the finances of, of uh, professional football that's not that dissimilar to what's going on with live golf, right? Like if you look at the cash, the cap, and the picks correlation of all these trades, it's really changed, you know, over the last whatever, five years, right? You think about uh, Jalen Ramsey and Jamal Adams and Laramie Tunsil and some of those initial trades where it was like, oh, my goodness, you're giving up so much or whatever, you know, even recently with, you know, some of these other trades with Russell and – um, I think there's been, you know, there's just a, a moving economy really a little bit, right? Like nobody really knows what anything's kind of worth. It's each team is doing their own evaluations and they're doing their, you know, their own situation to see what is it worth to them and what they'll pay. And that's what the, the price is, right? And so um, I think early on in that metric system, whether it was cash going to players or it was picks going for players, I think there was a really emerging market that people had not considered. Like, you know, what happened with Miami giving up all of, of the picks for obviously for um, Tyreek or, or potentially uh, for other players that they've traded for? Like, Well, I think Khalil Mack was the was the one after you guys that was I, I remember. I remember people saying, well, you know, who's going to give two first rounders for Khalil Mack? Right. Raiders got two first rounders and they basically got cap relief. Right. <laughs> and their argument was, hey, we're not any good with him. So what, what, what's the point of paying him, hurting our cap number? We don't have a ton of cash when we can kind of start over and spread that around, spread that that money around. That was the first time when people started to realize the value of of some of those players. But if DeAndre Hopkins traded, Stefan Diggs was traded. You know, there've been a lot of a lot of players that that have been traded. Randy Moss was traded during his during his time. The wide receiver thing is is weird. Did you did you feel any sort of disconnect with Deshaun or dis 
disinterest or a lack of engagement with Deshaun after the new Hopkins strike? Yeah, Deshaun was always really professional. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. He handled what he needed to handle and and came in and did what he needed to do. And um, yeah, no, I, I think um, you know, going back to what you just said um, in relationship to these other things, I look back at like I had studied a lot of what Sam Presti has done, and I had studied you know a lot at, at what basketball and baseball had done, and and their systems in which they attested value and a lot of the attested or the evaluated um, value that they had done it was obviously internal value but there was a pretty big delineation between what they knew as kind of a current asset right with Kevin Durant or LeBron James or potentially you know a starting pitcher those current assets were valued a lot different than those potential assets right and so I had studied that a lot and not that that was necessarily you know, my peak skill set, but I had studied it a lot. And I knew that those eventually would matriculate into football as people began to, you know, really study the money better. And it has, and it's been awesome for the sport to see all of the different changes and things that have gone on. And there's so many great leaders now in the NFL that have been able to make good deals for their club. It may be good publicly, it may not be good, but it's a good deal for their club. And uh, if they see that as getting better and that's the next piece for their group, then, man, that's that's the play you want to make because every every leader only has so much time uh, where he's in charge. And so you have to do what you think is best to get to the next step. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but Deshaun asked to be traded before the off-the-field stuff came out. What What was your reaction when he said he wanted out or his representative said he wanted out? Yeah, again, like player player transactions are very, um, you know, very unique because each player transaction has its own history. You know, like when a player is drafted, everybody sees that moment which he's picked and, they, you know, the hat is given and backflips are done and everybody's mom is high-fived and agents excited and all that stuff. And everybody sees that. But what they didn't see is on the field, you know, where he was in rural – whatever, Buffalo at, you know, a small school being evaluated by a scout, right? Or potentially maybe, you know, something where the the journey kind of began. And so for me, all transactions, independent of this one, like they all kind of have a start, uh, a middle and end. And there's always this kind of pendulum that swings uh, on where every transaction happens. So I, I didn't really ever get caught or thought in one piece of that of that tenure. I knew that, you know, obviously there's always things that people want, you know, grass is greener sometimes, sometimes it's not. I think that's every transaction, every player, every person is making that analysis. And so I never got really in one spot on that one, just just tried to handle each set of circumstances as it comes to do right by the organization, uh, ultimately, because I knew that was my job. How did it end there? How did it end in Houston for you? Well, I think, you know, everything uh, that when you're an athletic administrator, when you're in leadership, you know, everything um, that you're trying to do, you want to end with a championship. You know, you want to end with uh, an opportunity to, you know, uh, hoist a trophy. So we weren't able to do that, but we were able to do tons of good things. I think that that organization will continue into uh, the leaders that they have now who are all great men and great people. Um, And so, I think it ended, you know, in a way that 
there was a transition needed to happen to, you know, get people in there um, who hadn't had, you know, let's say those past experiences and people that had had different experiences. And I think now uh, th- those transitions have happened well, and I think it's for the good on all fronts. What's next? Well, man, I'm so excited about what I've been learning and reading. I spent a lot of time in college basketball. I spent a lot of time in, in professional golf, two sports I'm passionate about. I've been blessed to go visit a couple athletic departments and learn from some of the NIL stuff that's going on. I'm just trying to get educated at, at what's happening there. And um, I think I've been you know, very em- encouraged by how many people have reached out and uh, things that we've been given opportunities to do. Uh, my girls are 10 and 12. So thinking a little bit about that, right, and making sure they're in a good spot where, you know, they're uh, kind of healthy and encouraged and hopefully can be in a spot where they can thrive. And, um, you know, when you're growing up, man, those the ages of whatever, let's just call it 13 to 17. Those are the those are the history making years, man. You know, first opportunities to make teams and be a part of, you know, high school stuff and some of the things that go on with uh, making your first friends and uh, dare I say boyfriends. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, we've just been evaluating those things as they've come in and, uh, haven't really made a declaration yet, but really committed to learning as I've always been. And, um, the, probably the most, um, I would say encouraging thing of all of this has been that as I've gone different places, I think people do know, um, especially within a lot of the leadership, uh, you know, leadership groups and professional sports and college sports that I have relationships with, they do know the whole real story. And so that's been really encouraging that the last three, four years has been a challenge for anybody who's been in leadership, especially with what happened to us, you know. What would you, what, what part of the story do you, do people need to know? Like you gotta, you just gotta know this to understand it. I mean, you know, without me uh, editorializing, what's the part they need to know? Well, I think I think what people probably need to know most about my story is when you uh, are in a uh, diverse series of roles. And I think you described this well the other day when we were talking is, you know, when you have different roles, whether that's character coach or that's obviously being an administrator, uh, when you have a diversity of roles, you know, that's actually a strength. You know, that's a strength. Right. Like when you have a person or a group of people that you can trust for financial management, you know, ethical leadership, strategy, let's say vision, whatever those different buckets are, that's actually a blessing. And I think somehow, some way it got construed the other way where potentially, you know, one role that I had at one point or whether it was, you know, one role I had when we were winning championships. And so maybe those were a little more public was transferred into some other uh, projections or maybe some misguided evaluations. And I personally just don't think that's the truth. I think when you have a diversity and experience, that's a blessing. Like as a leader, you want, if you're trusting somebody with something, you want somebody who has a diversity of experience, you know? No question. So, so I get it. So because early on, a lot of it was about faith and uh, and that sort of leadership, you know, uh, then when you get into kind of the, the football world, of making football decisions, people push back like, whoa, 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 aren't you the, aren't you the chaplain guy? Right. They, they don't want to, I mean, even if you, again, you go back and you read the article, you're like, boy, he'd been around football. Like make it out. Like 
it really, they make it out like you were the Jaguars for a minute and then you're both college. And then all of a sudden you're the team chaplain for the Patriots. <laughs> and then you're making football decisions in Houston. That's how it reads. That's right? right. If you don't, right. That, that's how it reads. And I would say some of that is, that's how it was taken. Like, wait. And then the other part to it is you mentioned trust is it's hard for people to open up and being vulnerable and trust you about things. And then when your role is diverse, like, wait, is he going to hold that against me when it's in a football role? Yeah. And I think what's interesting, you know, if you look at some of the small businesses that have been passed down from different families, or you look at potentially somebody who starts in a big, big company uh, where potentially they have an executive trajectory, a lot of the first two to five years of that person, if it's, again, a, a business that's being handed down to a person and they want that person to learn and grow, or it's a person who's got a fast trajectory that's going to grow, they want them to learn all areas of the business, right? Go work in HR for a little bit, right? Go work in finance for a little bit, go work in. And so for me, like I just see it as a cool blessing to be able to have had experience managing a salary cap, experience, you know, being a part of uh, different evaluations with staff and medical teams and all the different things we were able to do. Obviously, be experienced on team building and constructing, you know, team and constructing staffs, you know, building curriculum. Uh, public speaking, like these are skills that I've been blessed to to gain throughout these different roles. And I just think those things, obviously, just like a, a corporate person who potentially is going to be given a, a job or a trajectory in an executive uh, role in the future, I think I've been given those same opportunities and um, have been blessed to, to hopefully serve those well along the way. So I, I think the one thing, if you're saying, hey, what is it? I think it's just does diversity of experience you know, we talk a lot about diversity in our in our world today, but does diversity of experience actually give you an encouragement that or potentially a feather in your hat that you can use to navigate things more efficiently and effectively? And I think the answers are resounding yes. In 10 years, what are you doing? God, man, I love your questions. 10 years. Um Hopefully, I've been given an opportunity to, um, you know, lead again and have built a high-powered organization that cares for people, is innovative, encouraging, and embraces all the challenges of what sports can bring, but also meets those challenges and exceeds the expectations of whatever the initiative is that we're, we're being given. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Last thing. Okay. I and mean, you've been great with your time. I appreciate it. How can you tell if someone's not the real deal? 
Is there is there a tell that you have that you go? How can you tell? You know, this is going to sound really simple, but I think you'll relate to it. I think I think eye contact is the premier for me is the premier authenticity meter. You know, and and I say that only because it's really really hard to trick someone's eye contact in a conversation. And I mean that in all types of conversations, when they're doing an interview, when they're doing a speech, when they're any sort of communication, even on the Zoom, you know, I think being able to see someone's eyes, because I believe an eye is a lot of times a window pane to a heart, right? Your eyes are your window pane to your heart. And so uh, to me, I've always said that that authenticity meter is attached to your eyes. And when you see someone cares enough to look you in the eyes or look a subject in the eyes or a group of people or an audience, or um, I think, I think the authenticity there will, will repeat itself when not, when it's not that way, I think it gets challenging sometimes to understand whether or not that person or that, uh, that relationship is, is truly authentic. What is elite time management? What time do you get up in the morning? 530. What's the first thing you do? Read. What do you read? Um, I've been reading most recently. Henry, Henry Blackaby has a daily devotion that my wife and I are doing. Um, and it's just got 365 days of experiencing God. And I read that. Um, I try to go through, you know, 20 minutes on CNBC, kind of a, a daily poll of what I think the financial projections would be, just picking up on that. And then I try to do all, I try to do three other major news initiatives. So I'll just go CNN, Fox, NBC, or CNN, Fox, CBS, just to kind of get all three of those pages, just to kind of get educated on where they are and what they're doing. Um, And then I try to get up, take a shower, and then get the day started with whatever that day may hold. What, what, What time do you get home? Well, it depends on what I'm doing. You know, days can deviate a good bit, um, but it's sure. You, it's usually say, say a day in which you're say a day in which you're working. Oh man, usually uh, nine thirty ten p.m. Usually, is your wife still awake? Uh, more than not, yes. What's your What's your process when you get home? Without getting too personal, which What's your process when you when when you get home? I only I only ask because you know it's like I. I find it interesting, like waking up at five 30 and reading devotional by that. It's not, it's not my morning. I get up and I, I do, I look at the phone too much. I do my, my CNBC is my phone for sports information. I always go get a cup of coffee. I start to do the, I want like 15 minutes of just sitting there drinking my coffee, kind of collecting my thoughts. And it's really kind of helped me like, all right, I got, I got to, what am I thinking about? What am I doing today? That look at a calendar just, and then at night, my, my whole routine has changed. You get home long day of work. 9.30 at night, what do you do? Well, you, you know, try to stay connected throughout the day, right? So that you're not updating data dumping all at home at that night when you get home that late, because obviously there's so many things that happen between, you know, 5.30 and, and that night. Um, but I think um, usually we would get home, just kind of connect on the girls, right? How their day was, what they had, uh, potential, you know, conflicts or scheduling or things that happen. And if one of them's still up, I would jump in and, you know, give them a hug and make sure they know, you know, uh, that I care for them and love them and, and uh, kind of maybe ask them about whatever that cheat code thing that my wife had given me was that they need to maybe update me on. But yeah, just try to make sure we're connected on family 
and what the, the initiatives are and potentially uh, my parents, my mother is going through Alzheimer's and my dad is going through some memory loss challenges as well. And so um, try to stay connected. My, my sister and my, my, uh, my wife stay connected on those things. So updates on some of those things in the PM and uh, really family stuff, you know, getting uh, up to speed on that so that you know kind of where everybody is and, and you feel connected. So proper amount of bed t- sleep time for you is how much? You know, I, it's funny. I've, I've deviated that over the years. I thought that it was five, five thirty. Uh, I think it's probably six. Like if I'm just, if I'm going to be well rested, I think it's six. Um, you know, if my eyes are closed at 1030, I think I have a chance. You know, if my eyes are closed later than that, I think I, I feel tired the next day a little bit. That's kind of what was it was. that the same when you're in the NFL or was the sleep even harder to come by? Oh, it was really hard to come by because you're traveling and there's so many different things that, you know, run into it, but you just have to stay disciplined. I've always been a guy that I try to stay on the time zone I'm on just because, it, you know, with travel, you're not there long enough, usually to reacquiesce. So um, yeah, I, I would say usually for me, six is the target and then, something kind of goes off, you know, and, and knocks me off, then I got to catch it up somewhere else. But right, last, I'll last, last. I'll tell you this now, nap guy, like not a fret, oh, I love that. not a fret, yep. 15 minutes, 15 minutes, no 30 minutes. No doubt. Yes. Not a it's like, to me, it's like, it's like plugging in a Tesla. Like I get, I get recharged. I'm good. Bro, people talk. But that's a, that's a gift. Is. Not everybody has that. That's true. And people, people get jealous of it too. Like you can nap. Oh yeah. And you're fine. Yeah, I'm okay. good. I'm actually better than good. That's right. 15 minutes, man. That's a, I've done that a lot throughout my career, you know, jump on the couch at work or potentially, you know, if there's a nap room or depending on the facility I'm in, you know, I've done that a lot and that's a blessing, man. Kind of recharge, get you right. What did you learn from the Deshaun off the field stuff? And, and by that, I mean, I get, you know, I'll just, I'll leave it that. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what, what did you personally learn from it? Oh man. I, I think, well, I think you always learn um, more about administrational tactics than you do about things that you, you know, if there's something you didn't know about or don't, don't really have any sort of understanding, there's not really a whole lot of margin there to, you know, to change, right? Because when you don't you don't know about stuff, it's really not a it was an outside the building type thing. So it wasn't really a margin there for something we would do incredibly different from what we knew. But administratively, you just go back through all your actions, knowing, you know, hey, this is how we handled this, this is how we handled this, this, is how we handled this. And I think you reflect on all of it. I don't think there's one part of it that necessarily stands out. I think it's all of it is to, you know, there's no, there's no way you can control anyone else's personal actions, even, you know, within your own family, you can't control. That. I, I understand that. But like, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong. It's like you said, like when I, I talked to a, a GM in the league and when that went down, I said, are you surprised? He's like floored. It's like, we did a deep dive into him and like, he's, basically a saint in Clemson, South Carolina. And, you know, in college, when you're a superstar, you can get away with some stuff. And you're like, nothing. We got, we got nothing. And so I'm wondering for you, as a kind of faith-based leader during that time in Houston, if you start wondering, like, was I fooled on this thing? 
Was I part of the problem? Did I see it? Is this, what is going on? Like you kind of got to be spinning a little bit because that really is your purview and really is your expertise. And yet on the other hand, there has to be a certain part of you, which you were getting at at the end, which is like, Hey, there's so much, only so much I can control. Like he's a grown man with a hundred million dollars in the bank. And there's a lot of, of other parts of their lives that I can't be a part of. I'm not privy to. So I'm just wondering in the, in the, in the times in which you're alone in thought about how that affects you, even, even to this day. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Doug, like I've thought about everything you can think of, right. When you're in this type of situation, you think about all of it. What could you do better? What could you thought better? Was there a judgment here, there, the other ways? Obviously I came to, you know, Houston after he was already drafted. So I had heard great stories about him from, from Dabo and and all the conversations and interactions I've had have been fine. So there was no, you know, I would say there's, there was no indicator or any one thing that I feel like we missed. You know, I would just say for me going back on thinking through how to lead well in all of those things, I think, you know, going through it is a great prerequisite or a great, you know, let's say preparation tool for being able to do it again better the next time when things like that come up. Cause it wasn't on the front end. There was nothing that you can do when you don't have that information, right? When you know someone's got certain things, you can try to help them with the things that maybe they may have a challenge with. But when you don't know that, when you're not aware of that, it's very difficult to preempt anything that you don't know about. I mean, that's a, that's oxymoronic within itself. And so I think you just, you know, try to learn how we administrated the different challenges of, of what that presented and going, you know, going through it again, if I was ever uh, blessed to have the opportunity to go through something like that again, I think I would go through it a lint with a little more, um, savvy, probably, um, probably a little more poised, just knowing the different layers and players at, at stake. Um, but I'm not sure there's a whole lot that I would say this is like one point that I would just change how this all went because a lot of it, again, were things that were dictated, not things that were we were dictating, you know. If I was to pitch you to somebody hiring, um, somebody of leadership in the sports world. Like, Hey, you got to talk to Jack Easterby. Jack Easterby. I've heard a lot about him. What's the two sentences that you want, let, what you want underneath your name? Well, I would say the, there's the first sentence would be, you know, and I've said this in this and I've uh, podcast and I've also said it with other speaking engagements is number one phrases. It all matters. Right. I think that's my belief core of who I am. Um, I think that whether it's how you treat people or setting a vision or being willing to sacrifice, stay late, uh, come early, whether it's willing to care for people, whether it's willing to establish systems that are tough and have ROI metrics that give you good feedback. I think all of those different objectives matter. And when you're trying to hire people, you as an owner or potentially as a president of a university or whatever, you want to know that the person you're hiring believes it all matters. Because in an interview setting, you can have one subset of, of information that you talk about a lot. Hey, we're going to talk about facilities. All right, here's the facility plan, blah, blah, blah. But you also know that the facility plan is only going to be one arm of your overall leadership at that university, right? So you've got to be able to have a, a wide range of authority that you're going to offer to the, the university or potentially the club. And so 
I would say the first sentence would be it all matters. And then I think second would be that team players sometimes get blamed, but the team gets better. Team players sometimes get blamed, but the team team gets better. Right? And so – you know, it's the analogy I would give you as a basketball player, and I've told this to my wife. I told her I was going to give you this one is like you've got four fouls, right? And, you know, there's 18 seconds left to go, and you're down by one, and you've got four fouls, and you know you're the best chance that your team has is let somebody else foul him, right, and then get the, get him to the line. If he makes both, no problem. You get the ball back, you can go bang a three, right? But all of a sudden – you know, you think everybody's gotten back on defense and you're guarding and you're the only chance to foul. So what do you do? Like, you let him dribble five more seconds out so that the, 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 the shooting guard can foul him and risk the fact that maybe he dribbles the clock out? Or do you bang the foul and you turn around to your teammate and say, hey, I got to have it right here. And then the guy tricks off one of the free throws. Now it's a two. Your buddy goes and bangs a three and everybody has a blast. And I think that – so that's why I say team players sometimes have to foul and take themselves out of the game in order for the team to get better. And so, to me, if you're talking about what is the exact interview speech, it would be, hey, listen, sir, it's it all matters. And team players sometimes get blamed, but the team gets better. And that's – those are the, the Venn diagram that I think – I would want to describe me and or, you know, hopefully uh, my leadership. Well, you've been awesome. I will point out that the coach should know you have four fouls. And since you're in a position of foul, he should have subbed you out and put you back in <laughs> and not put you in that situation. <laughs> but I do understand the, I do understand the analogy. I get it. You're, if you're willing to do the tough stuff to even take the blame for the betterment of the team, which is the whole reason, the whole idea of team, which is trying to help each other, accomplish a common goal and be better because of uh, of our well look this has been awesome i've learned an immense amount about you and about your path and i kind of have a vision a little bit of what i think is next but i'll have to just sit idly and wait and hopefully you'll text me and tell me when i know it's happening so that i can follow and see what that next step is like yeah well humbled by that and, and appreciate your passion for doing the right thing and telling people the right stories and you've told some cool stories on your podcast as you do every day when you report news and I think you do it fairly and encouragingly so let's let's keep the keep the dialogue I'd love it no question have a great weekend thanks for joining me Jack all right uh, my my sincere thanks and gratitude to Jack Easterby it, he he did not have to share as much as of his time or as honest thoughts as he did, right? I, I just, now you feel like you know the guy and I don't know, I have a completely different perspective on who he is, what he's about. And you start to kind of conclude to yourself that even when you read um, a piece on somebody, it doesn't necessarily tell the true story. This is the true Jack Easterby story. Hours upon hours of recording interviews with us, just talking about his life, talking about his thoughts, talking about what meetings were like. If you missed any of it, of course, the catalog of it is in the All Ball podcast. My sincere thanks and gratitude to Jack. I I thought those were awesome, fascinating stuff. And oh, yeah, by the way, some great tidbits in terms of leadership and building culture within any organization, be it football, basketball, or even non-sports related. Reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily. 
daily, three to five Eastern time. Plus we have the, in the bonus podcast, which is kind of a no holds barred. Anything goes pod uh, daily regarding all sports. But again, my thanks and gratitude to Jack. My thanks to you for downloading, subscribing, rating, writing a review of it as well. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.